0: Alright, my name is Rachel Woody, we're here at Elk Cove on December 2nd, 2015, and we're here with Joe and Pat Campbell, and our first question that we like to start out with is why wine?
1: Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually, Joe and I became enamored with wine when we lived in the Bay Area um, in the late 60s. '60s, and uh, we used to go and have picnics up at some of the wineries because it was a really cheap way to spend a day. And uh, and then when he, when Joe was doing his internship, we were invited to uh, a tasting of white wines from Burgundy mm-hmm. by one of his teachers, and we were blown away. We had no idea that that wine could be that amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, so then. Mm -hmm. When we lived in San Francisco, um, we continued learning about wine and enjoying wine, Uh, and then we went to South Dakota for two years when Joe was doing his service, and at that time we we made some very humble home wine. But uh, it was fun. It was fun. And the wine there
2: in South Dakota went really well with ice cream.
1: Well, we, we, we made a wine from these small little grapes that grow along the creeks, and uh, they're very, very sweet, but we added too much sugar, so.
0: Mm. so the ice cream pairing was
1: It was perfect. good. It was mm. good.
0: And to, to back up for a second, do you, what were you two doing? Like, I believe, Joe, you were becoming a doctor at that time. Sort of where were you in your lives, sort of pre-wine, and then how did that change?
2: Well, pre-wine, we were in Hood River, where I had a family practice, Mm -hmm. and I believe we just saw an ad in the paper one day for this property, and we really, at that time, had no idea what we were going to do with it.
1: Yeah, we were interested in farming because I grew up on a farm in uh, Parkdale, which was just south of Hood River, and um, so, We knew we wanted to do some kind of farming when we bought this property. And we had already looked at other properties near Hood River for potentially having a vineyard. But uh, then we found this property and it seemed very, very good. And my dad said, you know what? I think you guys should plant grapes because I don't think anything else will grow here. And uh, it was kind of true because there were a lot of scotch broom, blackberries, old plum, old,
2: There was an old prune orchard. right, Which had to be cut down and removed. Mm
1: -hmm. So anyway, we we jumped right in. We bought the property in 73, the fall of 73. We moved in on my birthday, the 23rd of October. And uh, the next spring we planted our first 10 acres of vineyard.
2: But I would add that when we arrived here we drove down the the dirt road with a wagoneer jeep yeah and an eight by 32 foot trailer which we lived in for about a year Mm -hmm. in the summer my children my two boys from a former marriage visited and they had to sleep on the bank behind the trailer because there was no room in the trailer
1: yeah, so it, it was, it was an interesting year. We, uh, it, it was a year of kind of discovery, whether we could actually mm-hmm. become farm people, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it was it was exciting, it was very exciting. We were just really lucky to be able to get plants at that time on such short notice, so uh, we ordered the plants probably mm-hmm. in January and then got them in May.
2: Wow. Well, we got some even later, it was mm-hmm. in, June or July and initially, many of those vines uh, succumbed to the heat and lack of water
1: mm-hmm.
2: and we had to replant. Uh,
1: but those vines are still down there in the vineyard right now and, and they're, they're still doing very well. So it's quite exciting. Mm-hmm.
0: Where did you get the plants from?
1: We got them from Koury Vineyards, Mm -hmm. and they were up near Forest Grove, where David Hill is now. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we ordered 20,000 plants, Mm -hmm. and half Chardonnay, half Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. So we had a very close planting, uh, six by seven, which at that time, uh, people weren't really doing that. But we wanted to do something that was akin to Burgundy, where we thought, the best Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays were being made at that time. Mm -hmm. So at
2: that time, that was quite a dense planting, Mm -hmm. but of course today, there's vineyards that are much closer planted. And Mm -hmm. was
0: that an idea that you both sort of came with, or was that sort of the the word on the street, that's what other people were talking about? I think
2: we heard that mostly from Chuck Curry. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, he encouraged us Mm -hmm. to he was selling plants so more yeah, plants more plants <laughs> but th- that, that was okay because i think that you know he obviously had a, a background of uh having been in alsace where they have a very close planting as well mm-hmm. and it made sense to us too mm-hmm. to try to try to uh look at wine regions in the world where they are making the very best wines and uh, mm-hmm. copy them
3: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You had mentioned that your dad suggested that, you know, the only thing you could grow here really might be grapes. Mm-hmm. Was your dad, did he grow grapes too? Or was he sort of seeing what might be happening? Or how do you think that he knew that?
1: Well, uh, he had been a farmer uh, since just, well, during the, the Second World War. So he'd been farming for many years and growing apples, pears, strawberries. and. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think he, he really did understand farming. Uh, plus he'd grown up near Helvetia where the soils were very poor. Uh, I wouldn't say they're poor for grapes, but they're poor for a lot of crops. You can't really grow other crops on these kinds of soils that are um, basically very, very shallow topsoil and then going down to uh, sedimentary rock.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And of course now Hood River is another wine country.
1: Absolutely. It is. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: what are your guys' thoughts on that? Did you see it happening?
2: We, well, we observed it later, but at the time when we moved here from Hood River, there were no vineyards.
1: Right. No, no. actually there were uh, some vines though. Uh, my mom took me up to uh, a place near Mount Hood uh, and showed me vines that have been growing there for 100 years mm-hmm. and so uh, you know the potential was there and they were they were vinifera vines they were uh, mm-hmm. and um, so definitely you know the possibility was there but uh, of course Hood River is a great pear growing region used to be apples mm-hmm. and I think nobody really thought about grapes that much
2: and vines are very adaptable I mean they grow and many different climates, many different soils. Um, And we're seeing that in Oregon and Washington. Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
0: So when you guys decided we're going to plant grapes, we're going to do the wine thing, was it one of your ideas, both of your ideas?
2: Oh, I think it was both of us.
1: For sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, uh, we just jumped wired right in, and at that time Joe was working in the emergency rooms, and so he could work for two or three days and then come home and spend a lot of time on the tractor. Mm. And uh, at first we thought we might sell the grapes, but then after growing them for a few years and, and seeing our first crop soon to be coming, we just thought, we need to make wine. And uh,
2: so- And I think uh, like a lot of the early winemakers, uh, you know, we just jumped right in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was true throughout Oregon. I mean, there were only, when we started, there were maybe seven
1: or eight wineries. Mm-hmm. In this area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we had a cattle loafing shed uh, that was on the property that had uh, two, no, actually three levels, or well, two levels, and um, so we converted that, we, we spent $11,000 and converted that into our first winery. And then we were able mm-hmm. to buy some equipment from uh, Jim McDaniel, who uh, decided not to go into the wine business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we hauled that down the hill from Rorden Hill Road, and it was, it was pretty amazing to see all that coming into our, our mm-hmm. uh, building that we had just finished. And we did all the plumbing, all the electrical, um, and painting ourselves, Mm -hmm. so it was quite exciting.
2: And after a year living in the trailer, we were ready to build a house. And so we we cut trees on our property and used those to build a pole house. And we did the work, we built the house, did the plumbing, did the electrical.
1: And that was a few years earlier before we started the winery. That was in uh, 1974, Mm -hmm. right after we planted our grapes. We just Mm -hmm. got busy and said, oh, we need a place to live.
2: So it was a very primitive home, but we lived in it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then our vineyard manager lived it in another 10 years. (laughs) And then we tore it down.
0: That's impressive. Mm -hmm. Because you're being a doctor for... Mm -hmm three days, but like
2: really long days? Well, not really. Often I would work a 24-hour shift. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I worked in Portland at Providence Hospital, and then I commuted to Longview, Washington. Wow. And I'd work 24 hours, and then come home and uh, get on the
1: tractor.
0: Yeah, do the vineyard thing, build a house, then
1: a winery. And I think one of the reasons we were able to do that is, is... um, our kids were really young, and uh, and they entertained themselves, uh, and you know we didn't for the first year we were out here in the country we didn't even have a telephone. We kind of consciously made a decision mm-hmm. that we really didn't want to put in a, a, a telephone, and we just really wanted to focus on on getting mm-hmm. our our uh, vineyard together, um, and. It worked out pretty well. We had a lot of free time. And it was amazing without a telephone. We didn't really miss it.
2: I mean, it was a full year with no phone.
1: We had a, there was a payphone down in Gaston, so if we needed mm-hmm. to make a call, that's what we would do.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's hard to believe today. Oh, absolutely. Today when the phones are attached to our appendages. <laughs> All the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. and if you're off the grid, so to speak, for even a few hours, people can freak out.
1: Yes. hmm true. <laughs> so, it was fun. And Adam uh, and Ertha were, uh, Adam was three. He just turned three mm-hmm. the year we, we moved here. And uh, Eartha was five. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, they, they were real good sports. They played outside a lot.
2: And I would mention our two boys from my f- former marriage. They were how old? When they when they uh, uh, when they ten, drove drove the crawler? I think they were ten and eleven, pretty sure. Well, we had a we had a Lamborghini crawler wow. that we farmed with, and during the summer, the older boy who was eleven drove the crawler, and the second boy walked behind and watered each of the vines. Wow! And it seems.
1: Yeah, seems really strange nowadays when you when you think about it, but then i, I grew up on a farm and we started driving the tractor yep. when we were ten or eleven to I mean mm-hmm. eleven or twelve too mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and uh you just it kind of just was the way to go they wanted to earn money and uh and we trusted did a good them. job yeah. yeah
0: so what did that uh, division of labor look like between yourselves, but also the children? Did you sort of consciously think, okay, I'll do vineyard and, and you do the winery building? Or
2: No. We just did everything together. See? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The planting, the winemaking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are there areas or aspects that you both prefer more? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah we both liked tasting yeah 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 (laughs) the tasting was wonderful Mm -hmm. yeah and i I think we we both enjoyed uh the not only the vineyard uh and growing the plants and seeing how they responded and just i mean once you put a vine in the ground if you give it some water the first couple years there's no stopping that vine unless it gets uh you know disease Mm -hmm. but um and with the winemaking, uh, it was just very exciting. Uh, we visited a lot of the wineries in California, and in, in 1976 we went to Burgundy and Champagne region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we just read a lot of books, uh, and we did our experiments on, with home wine the first couple of years before we actually started making wine mm-hmm. commercially. And in Champagne, we actually picked grapes during the harvest. Mm -hmm. So it's exciting. Mm
0: -hmm. So you touched on this a little bit, but what was it like raising a young family and also starting a vineyard and then winery?
2: It was busy. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it, you can do those sorts of things when you're in your early 30s, mid 30s. And I think, and we'd also, both of us had always worked. I mean, I think in the summers from about the fifth grade, we worked the entire summer, every summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was true all the way through. So we did a lot of physical work. And that really, I think, was a huge advantage. Mm-hmm.
1: Especially when it got, uh, when we started getting uh, our harvests in and, and mm-hmm. we had much longer hours. Um, and, I, I don't know, the kids, um, they were good kids. They, they didn't have any health problems and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, uh, like when Anna was born in 1979, uh, I, I actually, even before she was born, I, I told Adam and, and uh, Adam's older sister, Ertha, I said, you know, if I'm going to have this baby, you have to help. And uh, they were great about helping. And uh, we were also very fortunate. We had uh, a woman who uh, lived, who walked here to work. She just lived over the hill uh, from here. And uh, Marjorie was with us for very many years. And she helped a lot with uh, childcare when Anna was young. Mm-hmm. And also, um, she worked in our winery, in the tasting room, and on the bottling line for many years as well. So
0: when you're raising children while you're doing the Vineyard and Winery thing, did you both think, gosh, I really hope that they carry this on? Or were you like, oh, if they carry it on, great, if not?
1: Well, uh, we were getting a little bit worried, to tell you the truth. (laughs) Because Adam was at—Eartha had gone to college in Colorado, and she quickly became a real Colorado girl. She loved the sun. And uh, we figured, oh, she's not coming back. Well, and she became a nurse. Oh, she did, yeah.
2: So she had nursing as her occupation.
1: And then Adam uh, was getting ready to uh, graduate from Lewis and Clark. uh, And he came to us uh, about a month before he graduated. And he said, Mom, Dad, I know what I want to do. I want to make wine, which was like, Real music to our ears because (laughs) we we had kind of thought that maybe none of our children uh, would be uh, in the wine industry. And Adam had majored in political science. Mm Yeah. And we sort of thought he was going to go
2: on to law school. Mm
1: -hmm. So
2: we're glad he didn't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A happy ending there. Yeah. (laughs) So, for the wine industry and things that we've seen and and have had the opportunity to ask couples like the Mm Ponzi's, is it's hard on the marriages most of the time, is, is what we have seen. So for you guys, raising a family, still being together, what's the secret? Is there a secret?
2: I don't think it was hard. I think partly it was we'd both been married before. Mm. You know, so I think once you've done that and um, it hasn't worked out, you know, I think you're a little more forgiving, a little more understanding. and.
1: That helps. Yeah, that's true. And uh, yeah, I I think that uh, we we saw many of our friends, uh, early friends from the early days of the wine industry, their marriages not not working out, and it was pretty sad. And and uh, because you know we were friends with both people in the marriage, not just one mm-hmm. of them, and uh, we realized how especially like. A, Virginia Fuller and Shirley Curry—they worked so hard mm-hmm. at what they did to make their businesses su- somewhat successful, especially the Ponzi's. I mean, especially, um, what's I, Where was I? The go? Fullers. The Fullers, and um, and then to see them I just kind of like, oh well, you're not in it anymore. You're out. And and that same with the Eraths. So you know, it just it was really pretty scary. And I think that. Uh, I really didn't want that to happen with us. Yeah, I mean there are certainly are a lot of stresses especially when, you know, everybody's working very hard and and new things are being thrown at you all the time once mm-hmm. you get the wine, then you have to say, okay, we need to start selling it retail and once you get that going, we need to start selling it wholesale. Mm-hmm. And so and then you need to get a business model and start uh, being serious about your accounting, mm-hmm. and so all these things are being thrown at you. Uh, with a small business, you can't just hire all of that out. And uh, so, there are a lot of stresses, and I could, mm-hmm. I, but we were still sad to see some of our really good mm-hmm. friends, their marriages break up. And in the
2: early days, too, we, we delivered our wine. Uh, mm-hmm. I think for a couple of years, I would drive to the Oregon coast,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, one year I got, I think, was it five speeding tickets, or <laughs> I don't four know. or five, I don't know. In, in a rush to get home.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and the other sad thing, not only did marriages break up, but there were two suicides within a fairly close-knit community. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: And, you so know, that
2: I, was part of it, it wasn't all roses.
1: But I, I think that the, uh, the parts that I remember from the very early years of getting together with uh, friends who were in the wine business uh, were the times that we, we got together and really tried to think about improving our industry, making it better, helping mm-hmm. each other out. And a lot of those meetings we had at the uh, Tigered Fire Hall, which you've probably heard mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. and. Um, And, you know, just the camaraderie, uh, even though we didn't have a lot of time to spend together maybe socializing. We'd do that once in a while at Nick's. Mm -hmm. But um, it was just just really, really exciting to be a part of a group Mm. that nobody really knew what would happen and how far we could go. I mean, we were just happy to be able to make wine and maybe sell it in Portland for a while.
0: So back when you were first getting started, what were some of those early struggles that yourselves and the other firsts had to overcome?
2: Well, I think one thing was it took probably 15 years to break even. And so um, some wineries brought on partners. And we were pretty determined um, that we did not want outside partners. Also, in the 70s, um, we borrowed funds from the banks, 18% interest. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And not only was the interest extremely high, but many of the banks wouldn't even look at loading to vineyards and wineries. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, we were fortunate. I had a good income from medicine. Mm-hmm but if we hadn't had that uh we we couldn't have done this for that many years without income right
1: so it was very exciting uh probably in the early 80s we finally got uh a loan from farm credit services mm-hmm. and uh we were able to build this winery here and uh which made a huge difference because our our old building was getting very very crowded and uh so We were glad to be able to get Mm -hmm. that loan. And I think in the early
2: years, too, we made a a fair quantity of wine without uh, any of the modern equipment that you see today. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of, uh, I would say, much more physical work for us Mm -hmm. uh, than it is today because
1: of the mechanization now. So, I mean, that's a big difference. Yeah, it was, it was like making a wine in the old days, really. Yep.
0: <laughs> so, you, you're getting started, and you're one of the first in the area. Who do you go to for advice, or how did you learn how to do Anything. Books,
2: books. books. <laughs> no, we didn't. I don't think we really had anyone we went to for quote advice like to make wine, mm-hmm. because the chemistry of winemaking is very simple, mm-hmm. and so in the early years, a lot of the lab work too we did ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And of course now there's multiple places you can send, send out. out and mm-hmm. get results. But
1: uh, yeah, I. Yeah, I think that uh, there was a little bit of, uh, maybe a little bit of people wanting to almost hide things or not cooperate as much going on. And uh, so I remember we we helped out one year at uh, one of the vineyards and uh, and that was fun and exciting. And we got to see how uh, grapes move through Crushers and stemmers and presses, uh, and then uh, a few years later, uh, when we were presenting uh, our first wine to the ti- at the Tigard Fire Hall, and uh, I, I'm the one who's pouring the wine, and uh, I'm very excited about this Riesling that we had made from 1978, and uh, and the person that we had helped out said. If it was my wine, I'd dump it down the drain.
2: And it ended up being one of the best Rieslings we ever made. It
1: it won three gold medals that summer. So so, I mean, there was a little bit of, uh, even though there was this cooperative spirit and and some people, uh, we were able to like borrow equipment or they'd come over and maybe borrow something from us. Um, There was a little bit of the Competitive spirit going on there, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That hurt. It really hurt. Uh, yeah. But you know, once the, once the wine got out into the marketplace and into the competitions, then we we had our our revenge. <laughs> yeah, <so laughs>
0: ultimate justice. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, speaking of some of the the early folks, um, of course, our mission is we're trying to speak to as many people in the industry as we can. Focusing in on, of course, the, the Oregon pioneers, and we haven't been able to get to the ones that have already passed away. So Charles uh, Corey, mm-hmm. David Lett, Richard mm-hmm. Summer. So we always like to try and ask, you know, what were they like? What were some of the stories you remember of them? So mm-hmm. that we can try and capture part of that.
1: You have to tell well, them about. Yeah, Richard. <laughs> Richard.
2: Well, and Richard, Richard.
1: Oh, Richard. Oh, yeah. I have two. I have, mean, two, I have oh, two stories. Yeah.
2: One is Richard we Summers. We, we went to Richard Sumner's uh, winery. And he was, uh, like he often did, he did everything himself. So he was pouring wine in his tasting room for, I believe, maybe some Californians or something. And they uh, didn't particularly like the wines, I think, that he had poured. And so when he was through with them, he came back to visit with us, and he, he took the wine that. Uh, they had had poured it back into the, into the bottle.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But
2: that was Richard.
1: But he, he was—he was a very unusual guy, yes. and and if you could actually get a conversation going with him, which was difficult, mm-hmm. he was really interesting and had a lot of knowledge. Um, a very, very bright guy, mm-hmm. and
2: uh, I think one of my favorite characters in, in the wine industry.
1: And have to really admire him for coming up in 1960 Mm -hmm. and planting the grapes when no one else had done that since before Prohibition.
2: Mm -hmm. And he often didn't get the credit Mm -hmm. because he was the one who brought Pinot Noir first to Oregon. Mm -hmm. And um, I think partly because he was reclusive Mm -hmm. and he was in the southern part of the state. He didn't get the credit that David Lett did. For whatever reasons. David Lett, I have a great story. <laughs> um, when we, before we had made, I believe, our first wine, on a day in the winter when it was pouring rain, we decided we would just go to David Lett's house and knock on the door and visit. So we knocked on the door, and David came to the door, and we said, Well, we're. I think we'd planted grapes. No, no. Well, maybe we hadn't we We're planted. thinking about we're planting, thinking grapes. Of planting grapes. And he looked through the screen door, as I recall, and said, "Why do you want to do that?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> why would you want <laughs> to do was, that? It was a very nasty, wet day. And I think, I, and,
2: and I think uh, David had had yeah. the flu, and he was recovering, and <laughs> so it was a little rough those early years. But yeah, why did you but, want to do that?
1: <laughs> yeah, he. He certainly uh, was always friendly and very. Uh, I'd nice say very stars supportive. Very supportive, yeah. you know. Just that one. That one <laughs> that <he> was, <laughs> okay, but uh, Chuck Corey was a really interesting character as well, and and looking through all of the old material that I had on uh, our winery, uh, I was surprised that I didn't come across his name more often. But I remember going when we had ordered our vines and we were ready to plant them I went to his winery and said um, well I've got family coming and we need some wine so I ordered a case of wine and he said well you'll have to wait a bit and so he had to he put the he, he took took the wine bottles out of the case and put the labels on by hand and uh, then I bought the wine uh, but he he was of course had a huge, huge ego, and which I'm sure you've heard from other people. But I have to really admire he and Shirley for you know getting their nursery business going and mm-hmm. starting their vineyard there, uh, because uh, that was when not very many people mm-hmm. were doing that, and no one else was growing plants at that time. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't have been able to buy plants uh, so quickly, we maybe could have gotten them from California at a later date, but most, most of the plants were being grown by either uh, Chuck and uh, Shirley Curry, or uh, Dick and Kina, or Eroth. The
2: other thing that Shirley did that was just wonderful is that when Chuck delivered us the, the vines, some of them, as I remember, it was late June, early July, so a lot of those vines died. I mean, I don't remember exactly what percent, but it was a lot of vines. And so I would go back when Shirley was there and Chuck wasn't. And Shirley would just say, oh, I'm so sorry. And she would just give me whatever vines I needed. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to replant. I think it was in
1: July. It was early July. And 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 we replanted. Temperatures were in in the hundreds um, around the 4th of July. So uh, it was very, very hot. Hard to get vines going when when it's that... Well, and then our oldest boys, uh, Fred and Claus... They, I think, hand-watered
2: 10,000 vines, I mean behind the crawler, 10 times. They went through the vineyard 10 times, oh my
3: gosh.
2: watering. So it was every day for, I don't know, six, eight hours, they would be hand-watering in those milk cartons. Mm-hmm.
1: But yep. I think one of the funny stories about Chuck, uh, I have to tell another Tigard Fire Hall story, <laughs> um, Is you know we'd come to the meetings and usually we'd have somebody doing a presentation or, or, uh, you know, just maybe we'd have someone from the outside even coming in and doing a presentation and it was always very very fun and we'd always bring wine um, and then after the meeting we would have wine Uh, so this one meeting um, and I forget who was doing the presenting that day but um, Chuck. Uh, Went back in the kitchen, poured himself a big glass of wine, and he came out, and there was a table, um, uh, like a a banquet table, kind of like that, that size, or maybe a little bit bigger, and he laid down on the table, just like, whoops, (laughs) like Caesar, you know, yeah, Uh, uh. and sipped his wine while the meeting was going on. That was hilarious. (laughs) Wow. Oh yeah. So he was quite a character. Um, you never knew what you were going to get when you got. Chuck. I have
2: another interesting early wine story. We would often work all day, and then we'd have a wine tasting in the evening. And I think I had worked in the ER, emergency department, and I met Pat at a wine tasting in Portland. So she had driven there in the pickup truck with the wine, and I drove. I think we had a small Peugeot. So after the tasting was over, we traded and I drove the pickup home.
1: Very gallant
2: of them, yes. I would and say. And I didn't realize, but in the back of the pickup it was filled with empty wine bottles. Oh. From the tasting. Yeah, yeah, we were getting ready to recycle so them. So I got stopped by the police. Oh no. And I was very careful of the tasting not to drink much. And he comes to the window and he said, whatever, I forget. Um, I don't know if I'd made a bad turn or was maybe going too fast or something. And he said, oh, he said, you really smell of, of uh, alcohol. <laughs> and I said, well, he said, have you been drinking? And I said, well, I've been at a wine tasting, but I'm careful I didn't drink very much. So he got me out of the pickup and had
1: me walk this line and
2: <laughs> finger to the nose test uh, and so forth. which I passed.
1: Serial 7's backward.
2: I don't Serial 7's backwards, <laughs> which I passed. Yeah. And he let me go without a ticket. And when I got home I realized looked in the back and realized it was filled with these empty wine bottles. No wonder it smelled of alcohol. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Uh.
2: You should tell the uh, Sandy Reese
1: story. Oh, that story. one. <laughs> I don't know how many more stories you want to have. <laughs> I love all of these stories. <laughs> well, now, and I don't know whether you, you know about Sandy and Virginia Reese, but they planted their vineyard the same year that we planted ours, and they got their plants from uh, Cory, uh, the Coreys the same year. Uh, so we became very good friends with them, and, um, they're, they were just a wonderful couple and Jenny worked really, really hard out in the vineyard and Sandy was still mm-hmm. working uh, at the uh, YMCA. And uh, they were in their late 50s when they first mm-hmm. started. So it, it was quite amazing to see them doing this. But uh, anyway, one night we had we had some friends over and we were having wine tasting at our, our little house uh, down there. Uh, and so we had the wine tasting and and we kind of left all the glasses and the bottles on the table and um and then uh about one o'clock in the morning uh, <laughs> a policeman started shining his light through and, and banging on the door and we thought oh my god what's happening and so uh he's out there looking at the table and seeing all the wine glasses, yeah. <laughs> because people didn't do that back then you know that much and um, so he said, oh, I've got this fellow here, and his name's Sandy Reese, and he wants to know if he can borrow a car, because his car, the, the light, one of the lights is out, and I won't let him drive home. And we said, oh, sure, yeah. So we, we let him use one of our cars, and, uh, but, you know, it was kind of like, Nowadays, people wouldn't think that much about having a bunch of wine bottles and a bunch of wine glasses on the table, but back then it was quite unusual. Mm
0: -hmm. Sandy Reese, uh, we actually just came across his name a few days ago. We've been Mm -hmm. doing research into the Oregon Wine Growers Association, starting down in Roseburg and then, of course, the Oregon Wine Council and, and the back and forth and mergers and divisions of what is now the Wine Board.
2: And he was one of the early yeah. leaders and presidents.
1: Yeah. Yes. He worked very hard in the organization uh, mm-hmm. in the early years. And, mm-hmm. and you know, a good person to do that because he had all these uh, communication skills from the work he did with uh, the YMCA and he used to be a disc jockey even before that.
2: Yes. Uh, and then even yeah. the, into his, I
1: believe, 70s, he was still acting. In theater. In theater in Forest Grove. Mm-hmm. And Hillsboro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a really wonderful man and uh, unfortunately Ginny died very young or fairly young of Alzheimer's I think in her mm-hmm. early 60s. Um, but uh, they were they were wonderful people and um, we own the Windhill Vineyard which is the one that they started. I don't mm-hmm. know if you knew that but uh, uh, and how we happen to uh, own that is <laughs> Uh, We had just bought our Mount Richmond property, which was for us a really big deal. Adam had started working with us at the winery and it was a 102-acre property and quite exciting to be able to to buy that property. Uh, And then a couple months later, Sandy comes to us and he says, well, Pat, Joe, I've decided I want to sell the vineyard. To you. And, and he says, and I've decided, I want to sell it to you. And we said, well, Sandy, that's great, except we just bought this other property and we can't afford it. Uh, and he says, I'll make sure you can. And so for a very little down payment and a really generous, um, at that time it was 6%. Well oh, I have to by. tell the story. I have
2: to tell the story. Okay. Oh, I okay. met with Sandy at a restaurant and uh to negotiate and this is the way the negotiation goes you know we we'd had um, an appraisal okay. and so we agreed on the appraisal and then we needed to set an interest rate and i said sandy i think uh, at that time i said um eight percent seems good to me and he says No, 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 no. That's too much. I think 7%. (laughs) So we had to negotiate back and forth. He wanted less. And we were willing to pay more. Mm -hmm. But I think the down payment was like $500. Yeah, it was almost nothing. And then we arranged to pay uh, so much per month. And then we agreed that he and his wife could live there as long as they chose. Mm -hmm.
1: What a wonderful
2: deal. Yeah. So it worked out
3: just.
1: Yeah and he remarried later and and uh, it was they they just were very very good friends mm-hmm. and I think you know there are a few people in the wine business who didn't start wineries and and uh, and just had vineyards and they were very important to the industry at that time um, John and Sally Bowers I don't know mm-hmm. if their names come up but we bought their grapes for very for many years up until the Early uh, '90s, and uh, and then we farmed that property. Yes, for I forget
2: how many years. Was it two years? hmm
1: but uh, they, they were very uh, instrumental in um, starting the the Oregon Wine Brotherhood, which you mm-hmm. maybe heard about. Yes. But mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for John uh, and Sally, I don't think it ever would have happened.
2: Um, no, and actually, that uh, Dundee Hills Vineyard was then purchased. Uh, I, I believe first by Neil Goldschmidt, mm-hmm. oh,
3: wow.
2: and Neil Goldschmidt was very, very instrumental in bringing the wine cellar to uh, the state capital. Mm-hmm. So he was he was very supportive of the Oregon wine industry. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And uh, of course, that's now Winderly owns that properly, property now. Most of it, I think. I think it's been divided a little mm-hmm. bit. But um, John, John and Sally were very wonderful people, and it was fun to be able to buy their grapes for all those years. And I might just say a little bit about the Wind Hill Vineyard and the Dundee Hills Vineyard. Uh, we started buying their grapes in 1979, which was Pretty, uh, it, it was just pretty new to be able to buy, you know, to be able to afford to buy grapes from other people, and uh, uh, and when we bought their grapes, we decided that we would uh, make a, make single vineyard wines out of them. And as far as I know, I think I think Elk Cove was the first winery in Oregon to do that, where you actually would name a vineyard on the label and that that, that uh, wine would be 100% from that vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we had our estate and, uh, and then the Dundee Hills and then the Windhill Vineyard, and we made those wines for many, many years. And they were always different. Different mm-hmm. soils, different slightly different climates, always different.
2: I think one, of I'm gonna brag a little. It's okay. <laughs> uh, one of the very early successes came in, I believe, 1979 when Robert Druin first visited Oregon. And uh, Henny Hinsdale, distributor, put on a, a dinner yeah. mm-hmm. for him. And they decided they would serve uh, an Oregon Pinot Noir and an Oregon Chardonnay at the dinner. Mm-hmm. So the various Oregon winemakers at that time were invited to provide the wines for a blind tasting, and the tasting the tasters were all of the winemakers: uh, David Ladd, Dick Rath, Myron Redford, mm-hmm. um, myself. Yes. And and after the blind tasting, both the wines selected for the Robert Druin dinner were our Oregon, our uh, Chardonnay and our Pinot Noir from
1: 1978. Which was pretty, uh, pretty funny because at that time we knew we were going to have to come up with two cases of wine of each Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And we, the Chardonnay had been wildly popular and so it had pretty much sold out. So I had to go around <laughs> to different stores and buy back some of our wine. So we'd have enough for the dinner. For the dinner. The
2: other rather uh, curious thing about the tasting was it was put on by uh, Karen Hinsdale. Mm
1: -hmm. And at that time, she... I think it was the Oregon wine. It was an Oregon wine event, honey, though. It uh, could have been, but... But she was in charge. But she was in charge of it, and the
2: wineries that she represented were uh, Erath and Irie, and I believe Amity. And we were the one not
1: represented by her. So that was it was interesting because uh, there was no mention of of the wines at all at uh, the dinner at the dinner until Robert Druin got up, and then he thanked us very very big time, thank you for the wines mm-hmm. so it, it was it was an interesting <laughs> evening. <laughs> Uh, I think that might have happened in, I want to say, 81, but I Could wish I knew the exact date. It, it happened in hmm. Eugene. They they held it at the uh, Valley River Inn there in Eugene. but
3: hmm.
0: We'll look into that.
1: Yeah. Hmm.
0: So one thing that we've been trying to work on is, of course, the, the first argument. Uh, Richard Summer, Pinot Noir, of course, often forgotten. But there also seems to be a major controversy between Lett and Quarry. And there's oh. not much documentation on the Quarry side for whatever reason. There's some on the Lett side. And we often notice as historians that the marketing materials put out, at least now, Quarry's not mentioned at all. It's the David Lett planting, 1965. Mm-hmm. Do you have any insight or tips for us on. You know,
2: I don't think we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but of course, the- Quarry subsequently went out of business right. mm-hmm. and then started a brewery. He started a brewery four years before uh, Bridgeport in mm-hmm. Dick Ponzi, four years before. And I forget the name of the brewery.
0: Cartwright? Yes.
1: Yeah. And it also went out of business.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: In
0: fact, I think Dick Ponzi may have a- Changed that
1: into. Yeah, he natural. purchased the equipment from yeah. Chuck Curry because Chuck Curry owed him some money, I think. Uh, interesting. But I think part of what happened, uh, Chuck Curry had a
2: banker partner from San Francisco.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, no. It,
2: didn't, oh. He, didn't he? Oh, you're thinking of Bill Fuller, honey. Oh, I'm thinking of Fuller. Yes. Another one who went out of business. Mm. And that, I think, was due to um, bringing on a Partner, and then the partner subsequently pulled the funds. Mm -hmm.
1: It's just too bad because Twalton. I mean, it's a great vineyard Mm -hmm. site, and of course, Mm -hmm. Willamette Valley Vineyards owns Mm -hmm. it now. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, as far as the you know, when Corey actually came to Oregon and who planted first, I I really would. Someone
2: should know who put the vines in the ground first. Yeah. That's what uh, we're working on. <laughs> but but no hints.
0: For the quarry side, no.
2: I think who would know would be Dick Irwin. He would know because he yeah, was so he close. Know. Because those few came from UC Davis to kind of as a group. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, my my impression was that uh, Curry
1: came first. I I don't know. Yeah. Well, He's certainly on the one wrote
4: his thesis on growing cool climates. He and did. Brydles the coolest possible place. He did. That's why I was given some, I, I don't have to it first, but I think that in terms of credit, credit. Yeah. That's, that was the innovative thinking that probably brought David Latt
3: up
2: here. And um, I think they probably all discussed it down there in UC Davis. Yeah. But again, Dick would know. Uh, Ponzi, was Ponzi also? I think he was UC? just a couple of years later, a right?
3: Later,
2: yeah. a little later, Um A little later. But I'd be curious to know who put those first vines in.
0: Yeah. Don't you think it was the same year? I yes, I think so. Yeah. I think it's down to months. I know, but I oh, okay, a little bit. Honestly, <laughs>
4: like from a viticulture standpoint, yeah, whether you planted in April or March, to me, I don't know how you guys felt. I feel like it was exactly the same.
1: Oh yeah, year. absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm.
4: Right.
0: So I think now it's just with the marketing, especially from the Lammt Valley Association. Yeah. As historians, we find it just really interesting how the, the mythology has just kind of like left that out.
4: Well, and I think it's interesting too because I always give Corey credit for the thesis and the idea, which probably is what brought um, Irie up here, honestly. Mm-hmm. And yet I give Irie total credit because they're the ones that actually built a sustainable business. that didn't Right. Out of st-
2: still, h- yeah, still well, here, right? <laughs> well, and Richard Summers also did. Oh well, yeah. Oh
1: yeah, but they. It, yeah, that oh, listen, was way before them. Yeah, I was always under
4: the impression that he himself would say that it was too hot of a place to grow Pinot Noir down in the
2: emperor. Well, knowing Richard, I don't think, I don't know. I think You'd that. have to. I think he's quoted as saying that. Really? Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. He that's m- why he might.
4: on Riesling and other varieties. Yeah. Well,
2: yeah. He might.
0: Right. No, Could be. The mystery continues. <laughs> Could be. <laughs>
4: um, so what
0: organizations were you a part of? We, of course, mentioned the Oregon Wine Growers Association. Um,
2: were you both involved in that? Yeah, mm-hmm. we were. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, also the Oregon Wine Brotherhood, which
1: uh, I was used on, to be the Knights of the Vine. I was on one of the committees, the early committees of uh, the, or- the um, what I don't know what did we call ourselves back then, the Willamette Valley Wine Growers or whatever, mm-hmm. it, with our meetings at the Tiger, you probably know what it's called. There was
0: but, the Willamette Valley Wine Chapter Okay. But wow. it changed several times within a decade.
1: Okay. Yeah. I think at that time it was Oregon wine something, um, but uh, I was on one of the committees, and we uh, we had our meetings at a Chinese restaurant in Tigard, <laughs> and I remember just being totally incensed because everyone was drinking beer, and I thought, we need to be drinking wine, <laughs> even if it is from California. <laughs> But uh, I've never really been a big beer drinker, so that was easy for me to say. Mm -hmm. But um, also I remember um, Virginia Fuller uh, at that time worked very, very hard on putting out the very first Oregon wine brochure, and I -hmm. I hope maybe there's a copy of it somewhere in the archives, because it was a huge thing. uh, Mm -hmm. For, you know, back then, we really didn't know how to promote ourselves uh, very well. We were doing our best, but uh, right. uh, but she was the one that spearheaded that. And so we had our very first Oregon wine brochure, which was huge. Mm-hmm. Let people know where we are. You know
4: what vineyard was on the cover of that?
1: I think so, but yeah. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh my gosh. Of the first one? Oh, right. We didn't own it at the time. At the time. <gasps> Yeah. Yeah. That's. Different oh, that's.
2: That's yeah.
1: on the cover of the first oh, wow, that's cool to know. That's so
4: cool.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Am and I? I was actually president of the chapter that included Bethel Heights, because Pat Dudley was, I think she was the tr- secretary or treasurer, mm-hmm. and uh, we did not accomplish hardly anything. I mean, we didn't do much. <laughs> we had meetings.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, I yeah. think, uh, I mean. A lot was accomplished in those early years, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think, you know, uh, the spirit of working together there at the Tigard Fire Hall was, was pretty much responsible for maybe Dave Adelsheim spearheading the uh, the labeling uh, laws. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you'd have to almost think, too, uh, maybe even Senate Bill 100. Um, that was a little bit before us, but... Uh, um, you know, Dave Litt was very involved with Thousand Friends, which I think was really starting to have some uh, political clout back then. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and then the other the other thing, of course, is we decided uh, through the legislature to put a ten dollar tax on on our our tons of wine, mm-hmm. and uh, so that we could use the money for promotion and research. Mm-hmm. And and that continues today, which I think is great. And we have a wine tax now as well. Um, but uh, I think that's really helped our industry a lot, mm-hmm. those, those laws that were passed in the early, early, early years. Mm-hmm. And then I think uh,
2: probably, oh, Dave Lett and, um, who, who else, they were important for bringing in plant material. Mm-hmm. Okay. from Europe, and Dave Adelsheim, and Dave I believe, mm-hmm. spearheaded
1: a lot of that. The new clones and, from uh, Dave And that was mm-hmm. really important. And... Uh, um, as far as other organizations, uh, of course, uh, the uh, Oregon Wine Brotherhood is called now, but it used to be called Knights of the Vine, uh, Oregon chapter, and uh, that I'm not sure. When was that started?
2: Well, John Bowers, of course, was the one who spearheaded that. Mm-hmm. But it was—they it, were very, very uh, important for promoting uh, the wines of the region. That was, mm-hmm. and they uh, provided scholarships. Mm-hmm. They still do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, but I mean, the the whole idea around the uh, the brotherhoods uh, is to promote the the vines and the wines of the region.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, it was definitely a really great organization, mm-hmm. uh, I think, to, for promotion, mm-hmm. uh, even though it was outside of the industry. Uh, and then, of course, next was uh, um, the International Pinot, Pinot Noir Celebration, mm-hmm. which we, we uh, were involved with at the very beginning, and now it's what, 27 years, 28 mm-hmm. years, something 28? like that? yeah. And, uh, and then uh, Salud started uh, in 93, is that right?
0: It had at least 20 years. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's, yeah, a yeah. little more than yeah. 20. I think it's 24 years now, and, uh, and so we donated the, the uh, half barrel at that time, and have continued to support Salud, which I think has really, really mm-hmm. been important for getting good health care, preventative care for our vineyard workers. And we're really proud of both of those organizations. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think any yeah. other organizations we... Well, we've
2: never been, I think, big oh, organization I people.
1: Okay, <laughs> I, I have one more to talk about. Uh Joe is a member of the uh, Oregon Physicians for Wine and Health. Yes. And how we happened to uh start the group up here, uh Joe along with some of the other uh physicians, uh and there's other people too, we have lawyers too in that organization. <laughs> <laughs> one one lawyer. <laughs> but but um, anyway, uh mm. started because uh we had known that in the Bay Area, San Francisco, there was a chapter of medical f-
2: Called Medical Friends of Wine.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, so we thought, oh, that's really cool. That's really cool that they have that, because, you know, Joe's a doctor, and why shouldn't that be a cool thing to have tastings and, and education, too? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I think it had to be like 1984, Mm -hmm. that they invited Joe and I to come down to San Francisco and they presented one of our wines at their fall meeting, uh, which for us was a huge honor uh, because at that time, you know, people from California weren't that savvy about what was going on up here, unless they were in the Mm -hmm. industry, of course. Mm -hmm. But as far as on a consumer level, uh, it was all pretty, pretty new. Uh, but anyway, we poured, we poured our wines there mm-hmm. at their dinner, and they, oh, they probably had a hundred people there. So then after that, uh, Joe started getting together with uh, Cecil Chamberlain and There were, ac- there were and four, of
2: Fowers, us, four of us right? who started the uh, group. And the intent of the group is to really promote the healthful aspects of wine mm-hmm. and uh, reasonable wine drinking. And so it was Cecil Chamberlain, Uh, Fred Benoit from Benoit Winery, and John Bowers, and myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, we met at our home in Portland and established the chapter. And I think originally there were maybe, oh, 10 or 15 physicians. Mm -hmm. But now the group, I believe, is over 100 physicians from the Oregon, from the Portland region, and from Washington State, and others. And we hold uh, a, couple of meetings. Yeah, a couple of meetings a year, and they always invite uh, either winemakers or someone, a researcher from the medical school, who will speak on some aspect of wine and health. And
1: uh, there's yeah, quite a bit of research some very, going very on. very interesting research on wine and mm. health coming out of OSU and OHSU as well. And what they did in the beginning, which I thought was really brilliant, is they wanted to start with uh, the very first label from an Oregon wine, and so Richard Summers, he was honored that night. Uh, and then we went through. and This was John Bauer's idea, I believe. Oh, yeah, it's a great idea. I we don't, went through sure year by
2: year, and we worked up. I forget how far. Yeah. We probably did it for at least 15 years. Good. And. Uh, and then whoever would be invited their label would go into a scrapbook and they would present their wines at a dinner and the last dinner
1: uh, was recently yeah ken wright ken was wright Dieter. was uh-huh.
2: the presenter
1: and uh yeah it uh it's a very good organization and um so another if you're ever interested in finding out more about it uh rupert Cobol, Cobol, Colbergard. Colbergard is he's trying to do what you're doing with that organization, getting a history and, and all that.
2: And early on we realized we couldn't have just physicians because we needed someone who could kind of do the accounting and the paperwork, and so that's when we invited Rupert to be our resident lawyer.
1: But they also have... Uh, they the have ex techies. Well, they now have, I think they, they, uh, they've pretty much opened it. They've up.
2: They've opened up a little. They've they allowed dentists and uh, a few others.
0: Um. So one of the things that we have been curious about, and looking back at these previous, the older groups that are still in existence today, is there are so many individuals and personalities and some hardships to overcome to establish things like the Senate Bill One Hundred and the labeling laws and later Salud and IPNC, how did that work? Just like the relationship dynamics, the personalities, the logistics? What mm-hmm. did that look like? Did mm. it just sort of seamlessly happen? What was that like? I think it
1: just happened. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I do. Was- I also think that, you know, uh, I remember getting a phone call from someone in the industry and I, I don't even remember who it was. And I said, do you know anyone in the legislature? You, you need to call them. And at that time, uh, our brother-in-law, <laughs> one of Joe's best friends, was in the legislature, so we called him up, and and I, I think you know there was some networking going on to make make these bills mm-hmm. pass, and uh, you know because you know they they really didn't know the importance of of all this uh, because they weren't in the industry, but you know those labeling laws that was huge because at that time of course you know fifty one percent Chardonnay was. Chardonnay in California and, and uh, nationally, too, I guess.
2: But I think that most of the proposed legislation that was brought by the industry to Salem uh, was really passed, always, because the legislators, many of them at least, were wine drinkers. Mm-hmm. And it was very popular, and I think it's continued to be very popular with the, with the legislature.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that helped.
0: So Pat, this is perhaps a, a specific question for you, and one of the things we're also trying to chronicle is sort of the perception of the women in the wine industry. Mm-hmm. Was there any sort of particular struggles or stereotypes that you had to fight against as an equal player in the wine mm-hmm. industry?
1: Well. Um I think at that time, there were not that many uh, women winemakers uh, when Joe and I started. and And one of the things that that we did uh, was right away, we wanted to go down and visit two of the winemakers, women winemakers in California. So we visited with Mary Edwards and Zelma Long. Uh, and that and that was encouraging to to be able to go and see, okay, these, these women are doing well, they're making good wines, and uh, um, I think that, um, I mean, for me it was always like, okay, I like doing this, I, I, I enjoy making wine, I love working with Joe, and um, so I, I always felt like, okay, I don't really care what anybody thinks about it, I mean, I think that probably at that Tigard Fire Hall meeting, when somebody said, "If my wine, if it was my wine, I'd dump it down the drain," I think that you know that could have been a real backlash against women in the industry. Uh, And but I remember even talking to uh, you know other Nancy Ponzi just recently. You know, told me that you know how proud she was that that I was willing to actually stand up there and be a winemaker and uh uh because a lot of times i i think you know women might might step into the background even though they're working very very hard and they're probably involved Mm -hmm. in in many ways Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, yeah i think the thing that's so exciting is how it's changed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean it's pretty incredible you know i don't know what percentage of of winemakers are women now, but it's all over the world. It's not just here or in California, it's all over the world. Women are winemakers and they're doing wonderful work. And uh, we're lucky to have uh, mm. one of them here at Elk Cove with Heather Mackley. Um And she and Adam work very closely together and I, I, I guess you're almost like equal partners now in the winemaking, right Adam? You and Heather? Okay.
2: And I think we were from the start. Mm-hmm. But my perception is I don't think that was true of all the couples. Oh, I no. think that oh, no. in many of the other wineries, that the women weren't part of the winemaking team. So that and, was the reality.
1: And really even not no. giving that much given that much credit for the other Mm -hmm. things that they did too. Even if they weren't involved with the wine making, they were certainly involved with a lot of the work. And Mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to mention Virginia Fuller. Mm -hmm. And I know Keena Erath worked very hard in the vineyard. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's not a lot of credit, and Nancy Ponzi too, I could go on, but uh, uh, not a lot of credit given to them even for their role uh, although I think I think Nancy Ponzi, because of the work that she did with IBNC and Salute, I mean she's totally respected in the industry now, mm-hmm. and uh, for everything that she's done. Uh, so they were she was lucky in a way that she was able to continue,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, you know even Diana Lett she really wasn't that involved. Um, uh, in a lot of, uh, a lot of the uh, viticulture or the winemaking, but uh, she certainly was an important person mm-hmm. at Irie Vineyards.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So to get back to the name, Elk Cove, where did that come from?
2: When we arrived here, there was a herd of elk, probably 30, about 40, 30 or yeah. 40 elk, that came into the vineyards Area and stayed for a number of days, and uh,
1: there was a lot more grass then, and we didn't have the trellis up, so it was a nice place to come and graze so that's where the name came from, and i don 't remember
2: exactly how we put it on the label
1: yeah yeah, I remember we had a we had a herd the same same herd i 'm sure of forty elk uh, that came into uh, our The far field back there, we call that the Riesling Field. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's mostly Riesling there. And we had a deer fence around it, because by that time we'd figured out, oh, we can't have deer eating our our vines. The fence
2: was seven feet tall.
1: So it was seven feet tall, and there were elk in there. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And Joe was at work, and so I I went down there, and I started rushing at them, and trying to make (laughs) as much noise as possible. And they all took off, and they, they just gracefully went over the fence. <laughs> uh, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm a, there's gonna be tons of damage here in the field. And I look, and the, the plants all look okay. And, and uh, one little fence staple was out of the top barbed wire on the fence, and that was the only damage they did. It was, it was pretty phenomenal, because <laughs> I have heard they can do a lot of damage. Mm. Wow. But anyway, so the Elk, and, then, and the fact that this is kind of a protected area, we thought of Cove. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that concludes our first portion, focusing on the beginning mm-hmm. story for Elk Cove. Mm-hmm. We're going to pause and take a break because I'm pretty sure we're going to have to switch out the batteries. And then Camille will take over.
5: Um, I'm Camille Weber. I'm here with Joe, Anna, Adam, and Pat Campbell. Um, and we're here at Alcove Vineyards doing the second part of our interview. Um, so this question is more directed towards Adam and Anna. Um, and like the first part of our interview, we'd like to start with, why wine for you guys? What's your story?
4: Oh, I think uh, growing up with it and uh, seeing uh, our parents' uh, passion and love for wine, um, I guess it was a little bit like you didn't really understand it as a kid, um, but once you find your own passion for wine, uh, you can't imagine doing anything else.
6: Yeah, I find it's really home for me. I mean, I think for both of us, having grown up on the property and really being involved as kids in the business, working on the bottling wine. I think I was probably 11. As soon as I could lift a case, I was sacking cases. So um, it's just mm-hmm. part of us.
5: So Adam, you actually went to Lewis and Clark College to go study political science. Uh, what made you come back and commit to the business?
4: Well, I think when I was going to Lewis and Clark, I, I would still work Harvest and uh, help out in the summers. And um, I think when you're 18 or 19, it's kind of hard to imagine yourself doing what your parents did. And uh, so I was definitely thinking um, of doing something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, Um, I went away, uh, spent a year in Australia, uh, studying there, and uh, I think that experience, while I loved living in Australia, I I really thought about home a lot, I thought about the property here, and uh, um, my life growing up, and I think when I came back, I pretty much knew that I wanted to be involved um, in the family business.
5: And Anna, did you go away for college as well, or? Yeah, and I was
6: away for We have 10 years. It took me longer to circle back, but you know, every transition in my life, I would work a harvest. So I would take those three months to come back, and I worked a harvest after high school, after college, after I returned from the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've taken a more circuitous route, and my involvement here is more on the you know marketing and uh, you know website side of things. So it's uh, it's great that I've like found. Where I fit in um, mm-hmm. after all these years. So,
5: and did you study marketing or business? In college?
6: No, I actually studied biology, but then mm-hmm. I just you know started uh, working as a, a commercial photo assistant about eight years ago, and just got more in, and more involved in kind of the, the media side of things.
5: Mm-hmm. Pat and Joe, what were your guys's reactions to um, Anna and Adam coming back? Um, was it? Did you guys have an inkling that relief, you had that? relief? relief? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, actually, I I was probably almost ninety-nine percent sure that we would have to sell the winery if we didn't have anyone to follow uh, us because it's so such hard work, and you can't keep up that energy level forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. We're very lucky.
5: So, and this is a question for all of you guys, um, what, in your opinion, makes good wine? Is it more of the marketing? Is it more of the land? Is it Does it happen in the lab? Um, where does good wine
3: come from?
4: Well, I think growing grapes in Oregon is such a, um, you know, really is a difficult task. And uh, um, you have to put everything into it, and you really have to, uh, have everything perfect um, to grow grapes in such a cool climate and maybe in particular with varietals like Pinot Noir um, and uh, so um, I think um, you know for us it really does have it comes back to the vineyard and the sourcing um, so much of winemaking today you know there aren't any secrets we all know exactly what everybody else does when it comes to the um, mechanics of winemaking um, so then it kind of comes down to who has the best vineyard source. And, you know, we've worked really hard in the last 20 years in particular at not only um, refining what we do here on the estate property, where we have old vines that are amazing, um, but also finding uh, other vineyard sources, uh, other properties to buy. Mm-hmm. Older vineyards may planted by other people, new sites that we can... Um, Purchase and plant our own vineyards on, and uh, you know that to me is really exciting, and that's where we're still innovating is in vineyard sourcing, not so much in winemaking.
5: Mm-hmm. Would you guys agree with? Yes, definitely the grapes
2: and the vineyards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't make the best wine unless you have the best grapes.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I think you did. can still make bad wine.
2: Yeah. Always
4: yeah, bad. But, you know, I, I would say too is you know like the best wine in Oregon next year could be made in someone's garage. It, there is really nothing about the equipment or the frankly the knowledge of winemaking uh, that isn't pretty much an open book. Now, you have to make good decisions along the way and that's a skill you gain over time and um, some people have it better than others. Uh, but the reason why the best wine in Oregon could be made in someone's garage next year is they might have the best vineyard and do the best quality viticulture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, to me, that's exciting because it kind of levels the playing field. Obviously, we're very fortunate that, well, we're very fortunate that my parents started a long time ago, and we have the benefit of these great <coughs> vineyard sources here. Um, and you know, but uh, when it comes to doing high-quality viticulture, I think you know um, we're constantly searching out those great sites.
1: And I guess that uh, for me the most exciting thing about growing Pinot Noir and Riesling is pretty much what comes in the door is what you're gonna get. Because it already has been made in the vineyard. And with Chardonnay, there's a little more manipulation. But, um, and not to put Chardonnay down, actually it was one of our more successful grapes at one time and will be again, I'm sure. But um, it's just with Riesling and Pinot Noir, it, it really is the fruit that comes in the door. That makes all the difference. Yeah,
6: I, I think it's all about great farming on great sites, and mm-hmm. I, I think Adam's Adam's being humble about how, how much he's done to you know add, add to our vineyard sites, but also um, fine tune how we grow our grapes. You know, they, there's been a lot of changes over the past you know ten years or so with how how we um, you know take care of our grapes, and I think that that our wines have really benefited from that.
5: Mm-hmm. So how would you guys um, describe your tour um, here at Alcove? Has it developed over the years or has it stayed
4: consistent? Well, I think probably um, the biggest change has been being able to purchase and plant vineyards on different area, in different areas. So, um, you know, this vineyard and winery was the first vineyard winery in the Yamhill Carlton AVA. Back then, it wasn't an AVA; it was just where my parents decided to buy some <laughs> land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, you know that with the you know classic marine sediment soils um, proved to be incredibly uh, amazing for for Pinot Noir in particular. Um, so we've looked to expand on this same soil type in this same area. Uh, our Mount Richmond vineyard, um, which I guess we have over 175 acres planted over there, is is a very similar soil type to what we have here, and we knew that. Um, So we appreciated that terroir, but we also wanted other things for diversity in the cellar, to make single vineyard wines from other um, AVAs, from other soil types. So um, where my parents live uh, is a vineyard called Clay Court, and that's all Jory volcanic soils. Uh, I live on a vineyard uh, in the Shehalem Mountains called Five Mountain historic vineyard uh, planted in the 70's um, but that's all laurel wood or low soils. So between those two plus what we have here we really covered all the main soil types in the Willamette Valley and as a winemaker it's really nice because I can pick and choose from those different soil types for some of our wines that are blends from different vineyards and then I can also make single vineyard wines that really reflect that particular soil type and and soil type really the most important thing in our part of Oregon, where the climate is fairly similar north to south in the Willamette Valley, uh, where we see big differences are soils. And I, I consider that probably the most impactful thing about our terroir is what's underground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, I and mean, I think that Mount Richmond is the lower elevation. Is you know, I, mean, I don't know how much that changes the terroir if it's just also it 's protective uh, in terms of the weather because that tends to ripen earlier than this property
4: yeah, and and you know when it comes to finding new vineyard sources, like two years ago, we were able to buy a vineyard over near Mount Richmond called Goodrich that a um, kind of an investment banking corporation had planted and, and they did all the right things in planting it uh, but honestly, we probably knew more about that vineyard than they did um, and um, when it was up for sale. We were able to jump in and buy it, and uh, I feel really fortunate that these guys started so many years ago that we have the, um, I guess, the ability to, um, without partners, just with the family, be able to source the financing to, uh, to continue to expand our vineyard holdings, and I hope Oregon stays in that same, you know, that successful wineries can still do that. Um, I know. Uh, if you look at Napa and the experience down there with um, land prices being so incredibly high, um, I think that's, that's taken family businesses like that, mm. uh, like us, probably out of the equation for purchasing new ground. Uh, we're still in a spot where we're able to do it, and to me it's exciting, it's exploring, it's, it's, uh, it's innovating, it's, it's uh, you know, I always say that the best vineyard in Oregon probably hasn't even been planted yet, and uh, people think that's funny because we own these vineyards that we tout as being all this great and that's true, we we love them, but I look at hillsides and I think, you know, what would a vineyard do on that site? Um, And uh, it takes time, but as those parcels become available, I hope we'll be able to jump in and continue to plant. Pat and Joe,
5: what were you guys um, attracted to when you first purchased this land? Um, What were you looking for? Was it particular soil types or was it the slopes? Uh, that attracted you? None of that.
2: None of that? <laughs> no. no. We just drove down the driveway and thought, geez, this is a beautiful place. And the fact that we ended up planting grapes, I like think, was pure serendipity. I mean, there was no plan. There was no business plan.
1: We never had a business plan. Not Nothing really written. Not really. Nothing No, written. Not, really. Nothing no written. not really. Yeah, <laughs> no. it was kind of interesting that uh, this site had been for sale uh, for a while, and we actually had friends who uh, decided to plant in Dundee rather than here because it was kind of an outlier, and like Adam said, we were the first ones to plant on, on uh, ocean sedimentary soil, and, uh, you know, we found out that it's, it's pretty amazing, and the complexity you can get with Pinot Noir from that, type, that soil type is, is amazing.
2: Yeah, but so far as intent, I don't think there's any intent. I like, it was, think, it was I like to think
3: pure luck. I Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also,
6: you know, you you may not have ever discovered that you could grow grapes yes. here successfully and make great wine here
2: if you hadn't put in all the work. So
1: True. And there's some other We're
4: lucky. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, we there doing a lot of luck.
4: And you know, every day I come down our driveway, I'm really thankful that this is home base for us. It's a you know it's funny because when we were kids it was more you know kind of the farm we had horses and cows and chickens. And, you and had horses. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get horses, you got pigs, but you know it was just a great place uh, to grow up and um, our parents also planted some grapes uh, which was kind of a bit odd I think is uh, for the area at the time there weren't any other vineyards so uh, we're a bit of an outlier out here, but it was a great place to grow up, but at any rate, when I come down the driveway every day now, I'm just really thankful that you know, we have this beautiful property. It's 200 acres, 50 <laughs> acres of grapes, but we also have 150 acres of canyons and fir trees, and, and uh, it's a beautiful place, and the winery sits right in the middle of it, so we don't really have any neighbors. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice place to, to be able to have a, a, a winery that's also very connected to the land. Um, I know there 's a lot of wineries now in urban areas and in more um, buildings and you know, industrial areas, and I just think, gosh, I love being so connected here on a great you know usually October morning when the grapes come right in from the vineyard and within two hundred yards they 're uh, getting processed and uh, once they 're finished fermenting, all the skins go to compost piles right here on the property and um, there's a real good cycle mm-hmm. that we get to have because it's this big property.
1: And I think uh, the other thing is if you if you look around uh, the property here at Elk Cove and, and some of our other vineyard properties as well, you know, you'll see that, that we have a lot of areas where there's trees and like the canyon, uh, it's good for wildlife, but it's also good for our grapes because they're beneficial insects that, that hang out in those areas and uh, they keep us from having to use any insecticides, which so far we've been able to do. And we're very pleased about that.
6: And the birds of prey have a oh
1: yes, yeah. We like to feed some our some hawks. Some effect, yeah. effect on the birds. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, food source. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
5: So, what is what is your most memorable vintage? Is there a particular year that was um, perhaps very challenging for you guys to manipulate the wine and to create a valuable product or um, you know was there a year where they were if the grapes were perfect and just perfect uh, conditions in creating that great table wine? There mm-hmm. was a year
2: that was terrible. It <laughs> the the, the was in uh,
1: 1981
2: mm-hmm. and we had a trailer type crusher stemmer
1: mm-hmm.
2: that we hauled through the vineyards and we were in the far uh, what used to be planned recently and we drove down a side hill, turned it over, dumped a ton of grapes and I remember it got dark, we couldn't recover quickly and we tried to hike out of the vineyard and there was so much rain and mud that we kept falling and by the time we got back to the home while well, we were all laughing,
0: And it was a great thing.
1: Well, you know, actually, I I think you were thinking about 84. Could have been 84. Yeah, uh, but 81 was an amazing vintage, too, because it was probably for Oregon, it was probably the worst year we've ever had for botrytis infection in in our Pinot Noir. So the Pinot Noirs weren't very good, but we were able to make uh, Riesling and we selected individual clusters and made uh, a a select cluster wine, which ended up uh, getting uh, the grand prize in San Francisco uh, for the best uh, Riesling. So you're selecting for Botrytis? Selecting for Botrytis, because with Riesling, Botrytis can be a good thing but with Pinot Noir, it, it's devastating. So, so that was kind of the really good vintage for Riesling, really bad for Pinot Noir, but it's, it's memorable anyway. So Adam, I know you, must have yeah, some Riesling?
4: Yeah. Well, I think uh, we always tend to remember the ones that are really tough.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, True. really great
4: vintages, we like to drink them, they're amazing, but I, honestly, I don't really remember a lot of the, mm-hmm. what went on at those great vintages. Um, for me, I think just to be a little more hopeful, uh, 90, 1999 would be the um, really important year uh, for us uh, personally. I think for me, that was a. Uh, I worked um, as an assistant to my dad for a number of years, and that was the first vintage that he passed it on, and and it was it was my vintage, and I was really afraid that it was going to be a total washout because that was probably the latest um, flowering and the latest fruit set that we've ever had. So we were projecting that um, we wouldn't be able to ripen the grapes until um, late in October or even November. And I remember going to my parents and just just wanting to warn them because I think they were kind of excited that I was I'd taken over and they could kind of not have to uh, worry as much and I said I said you know there's a good chance that we will make only really ordinary wine this year and you know no single vineyard wine, no reserve quality wine, if you just look at the average, that's what we're gonna end up Mm -hmm. with. um, Because you can't project that you're gonna start harvest in late October and not have it be, in most years, really a train wreck. Um, And we just had literally the nicest um, October into November weather we've ever had. And uh, it's turned into a classic vintage, not just for us, but for all of Oregon. Mm -hmm. Um, You
6: don't
4: know until the grapes are in. Yeah. That's right.
6: (laughs) And even then, you're guessing until you taste the wine. Mm -hmm.
5: So when it comes to winemaking philosophy, how has um, Joe and Pat, your winemaking philosophy, influenced Adam? And then Adam, how do you think your winemaking philosophy differs from Mm -hmm. your parents?
1: Well, uh, I'm going to have to give Joe credit for being a, a doctor and, and always reminding us of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, because that's kind of how we went into winemaking, is, you know, first of all, don't screw it up, right, by adding something stupid and or putting something bad on your grape vines that, that could actually, and it happened, it, it's happened to quite a few vineyards and wine or quite a few wineries. Uh, so um, anyway, just, and then when you get those grapes in, it's okay, babysit them well, you know, top your wines often, uh, and there's so many other things that, that you, you should do that are basically just taking care of those, those grapes. And so that's my philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many things
4: that I learned uh, from my parents, and I think some of it—it's uh, interesting because some of it I don't even—I don't even think we really realize. But uh, I think having both our parents be so involved in the vineyard and winery at an early, at our early age. Um, they talked about winemaking constantly and talked about the business constantly and to the point where I think the kids would be like, oh, I'm sick of you talking about yeah. wine. Yeah, We're right. talking about something else. Yeah. And, uh, but, but in reality, I think that, you know, I can reflect back on those things and I can learn. I've learned so much from just kind of having it as an experience of all through my childhood. Um, I think in terms of uh, actual winemaking, um, Uh, I think the the do no harm thing is key. I think you know I've taken on that um, role of um, being a steward to the um, wines that that we the grapes that we bring in, and uh, you know it's often what you don't do that's the most important thing. Um, And um, you know intervention in the winery you have to do it sometimes, but I think for the most part, if you can really just let the grape shine through, that's key. and, you know, you know, over the last, I think, you know, 15, 20 years, uh, um, you know, winemaking's evolved everywhere. And especially in Oregon, and um, we uh, do some things different than we used to do. Um, but um, I think that's more just an evolution that we've all experienced. And uh, um, ultimately, like I was saying before, it really does come down to grape sourcing and, and quality of the vineyards that you own.
5: How have you guys seen Elk Cove evolve throughout the years?
6: That's a broad question. I know. (laughs) Um,
5: Whether that be from a marketing standpoint or from um, expanding your business. um, The qualities of your
4: wine. I think, you know, just to follow up on what I was talking about before, um, the business has really changed, uh, you know, every year really. And uh, we're in a constant um, growth pattern of planting more vineyards and, and uh, trying to um, expand the business. And, and it really is different. Like when I came back to the family business in um, 94, 95, um, it wasn't much bigger than my parents and myself. We had maybe one or two other full-time employees. And uh, um, a lot of what I do um, now is... Um, Kind of creating a team of people, and uh, you know, we have so many more acres and so much more wine, and and uh, um, you know, managing a great team of professionals. That back in the early 90s, not only us, I don't think any Oregon winery was able to really hire and retain um, professional people in those really important jobs. It was just the owners that had to do it, mm-hmm. the founders that had to do it, and. Uh, I'm really glad we've evolved into a situation where we can afford to um, hire true professionals in the vineyard, the winery, winemaking, and in sales and marketing, mm-hmm. administration.
6: Yeah, it has changed a lot.
4: Mm-hmm. It really
6: has. I, I think the uh, you know the early winemakers they really got the quality of Oregon wine up, and and over the years had so much more interest in both in Oregon and in other markets that it's. I think it's expanded beyond what anyone could have
1: imagined um, back in the day. And I think Adam uh, has been such a really good manager working with our employees. Uh, that's been really key. Uh, but also, you know, when, when Adam came back uh, to join the business, then it was... It was somewhat easy to go out there and say, okay, let's buy this 102-acre property that's down the road, which is Mount Richmond now, only it's expanded because we bought the property across the road as well. But it was easy to kind of make that leap. But if it would have been just Joe and I, and uh, we were getting older, of course, you know, I was like, how can we do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's... I think the other change
2: that that Adam has really made, uh, is in limiting the amount of grapes you put on each vine. Because I think in the early years we overcropped the vines many years. We really had it took us a long time to figure out. You really had to uh, limit the number of clusters per vine. And I think today they've really gotten that down to where it makes a huge
4: difference in the quality of the wines. Yeah, uh, early days it yeah. was, I mean not just here, it was every winery mm-hmm. in Oregon, and what we tended to see was these kind of on and off year cycles where mm-hmm. you'd end up with a really big crop mm-hmm. and then the grapes The vines would produce a very small crop, and uh, it kind of led to this notion about Oregon that our quality was inconsistent, because it kind of was. Because you can't go from a really big crop to a really small crop and not have it affect quality. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so starting in the early 90s, I think um, paying really close attention to crop level of each vine, and uh, uh, what that's allowed us to do is it regulates the vine to, Basically, produce the same amount every year, and if it is a little heavy, we'll take some off. But we can get this consistent quality, which I think, you know, Oregon had to evolve as a industry. I think made huge difference, and and especially in such a cool climate.
1: And I think I think uh, I might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but. uh, as far as the evolution, I think it, it's been great that we were finally, after I did the bookkeeping for so many years, able to hire a full-time bookkeeper, hire some good salespeople, and then with Anna coming on, we could work more on our social media and artistic direction, and uh, so it's it's been, it's been a, a wonderful evolution, I would say. Uh, for our family and for Elk Cove.
6: I, I had a, a question actually about that. So knowing uh, you know, about how many tons per acre um, is ideal here. I mean, I know it depends on weather a little bit, but like where did that knowledge come from? Did, was that kind of crowdsourced from, from different uh, wine, you know, vineyardists and wineries working together? Or well, was it something mm-hmm. that came from studies?
4: There's definitely research both out of Europe and that Oregon State has done. Uh, but honestly, a lot of it um, has been, yeah, more um, talking to your peers, um, mm-hmm. you know, working together and, you know, making your own trials. And, and we did that in the early days where we cut off half the fruit on a certain vineyard and make the two wines separately. I and think then I had a blind taste it.
2: see mm-hmm. it, it was trial and error. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you
4: you can't fool yourself mm-hmm. if you blind taste it and one's better than the other. You. You know, you and I think that
2: evolved to where today every grape grower knows that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They all know it. Yeah. And with Pinot Noir, they have to do it. and They all do it.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't think there's anyone that's trying to double the production.
4: The other big, you know, the other big evolution. You know, I think earlier, I think Pat said that, you know, their goal here was to make some wine, sell it out of the mm-hmm. cellar door. Maybe some folks in Portland would like to try it. And uh, I always think that's amazing that that was, that was really all you could envision because there was no model or history for doing anything different. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. like, that was shooting mm-hmm. for the moon. Yeah. And you know, now we sell wine throughout the United States in every state, 12 export markets. Um, I think as lifelong Oregonians, we're really proud of the fact that we get to bring dollars home to Oregon from wines Mm -hmm. that we sell overseas or in New York or Chicago. Bring dollars home to Oregon, to um, plant more vineyards, employ more people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the evolution of the industry and and the evolution of our, honestly, our ability to be profitable doing it has allowed us not only to expand but also to fulfill our um, desire to um, provide living wage jobs for all employees. So for all of our vineyard workers, we are able to provide health care, 401K, paid time off. For folks that work in agriculture, all originally from Mexico or Central America, um, you know, they're so important to what we do here. And farming 300 plus acres, uh, you know, they're our most important employees. And we figured out how to, um, you know, through having them help inside with bottling, harvest, um, planting more vineyards every year, always keeping something on the docket to have them do, that we can, for the ma- majority of our vineyard workers, it's not a seasonal job anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a professional job. They're, and they're the ones that, mm-hmm. they know more about pruning than I do.
6: Yeah, it really <laughs> becomes a skill. And so
4: they care, need health care, they need living wage jobs, oh, yeah. need, and it's not that we don't hire seasonal workers, obviously for harvesting the grapes, we don't have enough people um, yeah. But if we can have each person, on our core crew, um, provide a value add by driving the tractor, by helping it harvest, by fixing equipment, planting new vineyards, uh, you know, it's amazing what we can do. And that's, mm-hmm. that's something I don't think, you know, we couldn't even in, imagine in the early now, days.
2: In the early days, uh, many of our workers, <laughs> most of them, were undocumented. Mm-hmm. And when they had an amnesty, most most of them then became U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. And today it's so different. Uh, I work a, a few days a month at an urgent care clinic
3: mm-hmm. now,
2: and to me, it's amazing. The Hispanic workers will come in, they're covered by workers' comp insurance. You never would have seen that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's a wonderful change.
1: Yeah, and in fact, I remember the, the very first, uh, Vineyard worker we ever hired. We hired him to help pick grapes at harvest, and his wife and he would go into the vineyard, and they would, um, she would go ahead of him and take off the leaves so that he, should, he could see the grapes. And they lived in their car, right up at the top of the driveway, and and then every few nights uh, they'd come down and they'd take a shower at our house. I mean. That's how dire it was back then, because it was so hard to find really good workers. I mean, they we were terrified. We had
6: a lot of volunteers. We
1: but had volunteers. They the yeah, a lot seniors. of volunteers in the early years. But and, and you know, us as teenagers. Absolutely. I, just, I
6: think a lot about like quality control in the vineyard and how <laughs> better it must be now. But, yeah. You know, we've we've had this you know steady crew, and they you know they're. Highly skilled,
1: and I think yes. what they're going on. Like some of our workers, what they've been with us for over 15 years, right? Yeah, yeah, just pretty great.
6: Yeah, I mean, over, overall at go very good retention. So, and I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, that sh- that shows how the industry is really starting to thrive, but also how Adam's a great manager.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, like I said, I I feel fortunate that the industry is successful enough now we can. Live up to the ideals that we want to put forth.
6: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just incredible to think about like how much it's changed. Like we get tourists here. Like every day we get tourists. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Just incredible. I mean okay. you know, we have wine club members that like this last All throughout the US. club dinner we had some people who flew out here from Virginia to go to it, the dinner that we we put on. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, it's it's so different. I mean people in, on the East Coast are hearing about wine and
2: it's just... It's, I might comment about really the marketing in the early years. When we started to venture out to places like New York and Boston, they laughed at us. You know, <laughs> they really didn't even want really to taste the wines. Mm-hmm. It is so different.
1: Yeah, I, I have a kind of an interesting historical um maybe slightly off the subject, but I think it's important. In 19, uh, I think it was 84, uh, we went, uh, quite a few of the winemakers from Oregon went down to Dallas, Texas, where they had a big, uh, they called it the Dallas Morning News uh, event. And so there were a lot of us from Oregon, uh, a lot of Oregon winemakers, and then there were a lot of uh, Washington winemakers. And at that time, we as an industry were sort of in line with, it was like gonna be a Northwest thing. It's gonna be Pacific Northwest winemaking because some people were, we were still getting wines from Washington. Washington was seeing, Oregon's doing pretty well, and so we kind of were aligning ourselves all together. Uh, and it, it all fell apart one evening And I I will never forget this, because uh, there were about 16 of us winemakers, and we were at a a nice restaurant in Dallas, and it was an Italian restaurant. Uh, But um, one of us naively asked, do you have any wines from the Northwest? And they said, you mean Northwest Italy? And, And so, of course, then at that time, we thought, oh my gosh. This is a huge problem because Northwest is too ambiguous. You need to be Oregon. You need to be Washington, and that and that's exactly what happened. The following years, um, Oregon started doing their own marketing. Washington started doing their own, and they both. Viticultural areas have been really successful, or both, all of our viticultural areas.
6: Unless you're making wine in the porch. Right? Yeah. yeah, and then, and then it's uh, yeah,
1: back and forth, or even yeah. uh, Eastern Oregon, too. Yeah. yeah, a little bit.
5: So, Pat, you talked about some of the challenges in terms of marketing these wines. Um, uh, were there any other challenges that you guys had to overcome um, to get to... Um,
4: the success that Alcoa is experiencing today—hard to pick. Financing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. we've already talked about that a little bit.
4: Yeah, I mean, um, I think that it's it's been good. We, I mean, we've had um, the ability to grow in a smart way and incrementally, and uh, that's been really good. I feel really fortunate that we have been able to um, secure financing from. Uh, good lenders out there that uh, basically are willing to um, bank on us that we're doing good work. Um, today we're you know essentially when we buy new properties we're able to finance with people that essentially a big part of what they do is taste the wine. They look at the books too. They want to make sure that, that you're running a solid business and that you have good key people in place but they also taste the wine and uh, realize that if you're doing good work that, that they, they want to be a partner with you, and Mm -hmm. you know, honestly those are the best, the only kind of partners that we want to have are Mm
3: -hmm.
4: ones that we can pay off the note and not have them as partners anymore (laughs) if we don't want them, (laughs) so yeah, and you know, I don't know, it's, there's a, it's not just Anna and I, we have two brothers and two, and two brothers and a sister, and so uh, it's been fun kind of getting them, I guess, educated Mm -hmm. about what we're doing here, yeah
1: yeah I think uh um, I can't think of it. i mean obviously the the marketing is huge and and it's not just marketing uh it's it's yeah. not just simple marketing you know we we have our our retail outlet here at the winery and then we have our wine club and then we have our wholesale sales and we have our international sales so it's it's really pretty complex uh, but and that's that's why it's nice to be able to afford to hire good people and have Adam managing these good people and for Anna to be getting the the message out on our website and um,
4: yeah I was you know one of the challenges I think for any family business is kind of um, figuring out how to how can you all get along and and all that and it's a, it's a good industry for kind of collaborative mm-hmm. work amongst wineries so. I think every second-generation kind of person that comes into the industry um, I'll end up taking them out to lunch and we'll chat about you know my path and um, I'm interested in what they've done and you know the thing I always tell them and I um, is you know bring something to the table don't just you know you know our parents were uh, innovators entrepreneurs be the same thing you know take the business in Um, an even greater direction because that's how you're going to be appreciated and uh, It would be a disservice to our parents if we didn't push to be this, you know, the same kind of entrepreneurs that they were, you know, and uh, and that's, you know, as you know, a growing business and having to um, you know afford um, all the things that we want to do in life, it's a, if you don't grow, you're not gonna be able to attain that. I think
2: Pat and I are very grateful that all of our kids get along. They really do. Well, <laughs> from what we can observe. Yeah. From what we can observe.
1: It's true, and I, and I think I, uh, I feel really good about having been able to include them in our business, which is not true of of all all of the people that we know, and uh, and and I think, unfortunately, I think it, it's for whatever reason not being able to include them. I, I don't know what it might involve, but it it hasn't been good for their businesses uh, not to be able to to take it to the next generation.
6: Well, I think it was it was tough when Adam. I mean that that time period was harder. I think now it's a lot easier for the next That's generation true. to Absolutely. see like, that this is it's a sustainable business. It's something mm-hmm. that is going, you know, going to really be a career. Mm-hmm. Like I think you you know you were one of the first. <coughs>
4: mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know like most of the pioneer wine families of Oregon, I think I mean you guys were in the same boat where you didn't have a retirement plan. You didn't have money outside the business. It was all here and tied mm-hmm. up, and I feel really fortunate that they were willing to take a chance on um, you know, having me take over in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, um, because that's an incredible risk. I think I only realize that now as a as an older adult, that um, if that really is your only kind of nest egg or retirement, to hand that off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that they weren't still involved, but you know, for the most part, handing it off to um, your kid—that's a big. To me, it's a big risk. We, a good thing we <laughs> we've done well.
3: People always <laughs> have a little intuition. Like I
4: said. Well, also, you're not. You're also not very focused on. You're you're much less focused on money than most people yeah, in the world. So I think that helped too. That you were just like well. It, It'll probably work out.
3: <laughs>
2: and we had a family plan. The vineyards we turn those over to our children.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's all a of tax them, all of
2: them mm-hmm. except for five five percent. But like Adam said, uh, the winery right now is really our retirement.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's you know that's that's a responsibility and one that I'm happy to to take on is that you know it does have to. Pay for your family, my family. Um, we have to be successful, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know the the vineyards and being able to expand and buy more vineyards and mm-hmm. plant more vineyards. That's a real long-term plan that helps the winery and helps our mm-hmm. uh, wine quality. Um, but it's also good for mm-hmm. all of your kids. Mm-hmm. So where do you
5: guys see the future of
3: California
5: And then.
6: Follow-up question being: Where do you guys see the broader Oregon wine industry going towards? Just like Napa. the Story. Oh, you're not Napa yet. Don't become Napa. I've I've barely been to Napa, but um, it's. uh, It. I think it's hard to imagine in 20 years. but, but I think that, that the Oregon wine industry, the, the, the people are really being careful mm-hmm. about it. Like I think there's, I mean, Oregon is known for this kind of long-term planning, um, historically. And I think the wine industry is is taking mm-hmm. that on. But
4: mm-hmm. well, I think for Elk Cove, I mean, I would hope that um, you know, there's, I've got three kids. Anna has two kids. They're pretty young, but um, my brothers and sisters have kids. It'd Be nice if if you know, one or more of them took an interest in it, it's interesting because I, sometimes I feel a little hypocritical because I, like, I tell my kids, well, if you want to do it, you, know, you have to you go to school and learn to be a winemaker, you have to work for other wineries, you have to do all this stuff that I, I didn't really do. <laughs> um, but, I th- yeah. but I think in today's day and age, that is really what you need yeah. to do. And for a business this size, it's a lot bigger than it was 20 years ago. It's probably five times bigger they need to bring something to the table. And if they do that, then gosh, you know, it's amazing. We could have a -hmm. a third generation kind of family business, which would be great. Um, But they have to be uh, bring something to the table, be entrepreneurial, be innovators. Not just because that's important (laughs) to me, but. um,
1: (laughs) And and, and hopefully they'll have to bring uh, a, a love of wine and of maybe growing plants growing yeah. things Yeah, you know without that i think it would be hard but i mean there are sales jobs but even our sales people i think they they get out uh, and work with us at harvest some and oh, yeah. and uh, really appreciate what we do in the vineyards
4: and they could passionately take on one portion of the business which would be probably the best evolution for elk cove um, but in, in your other question the broader question of where oregon is going Uh, It kind of ties into that because one of the reasons why I wouldn't want anybody in our family to join the business unless they really brought something to the table and they were willing to really try to push um, because there's so many people in Oregon now there's you know 700 wineries there's 50 to 100 new wineries every year there's um, the competition is going to be fierce and um, if if we don't um, do everything we can to maintain quality and and be innovative and entrepreneurial. Then you know it, our our time will fade too. Mm-hmm. So you know and it it's a it, you could say uh, that would make you nervous or scared, but it's just to me it's just kind of exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and I think e- even like years and years ago, uh, I remember uh, somebody uh, equating. Going into the wine business as being on a fast-moving train, and it's true. It's still true today. Uh, you know, if if we don't keep up um, and do our very best here at Elk Cove, then we could be we could be not in your next history. <laughs> yeah, you'll be forgotten pretty quickly <laughs> yeah. if you're not. The, very and well. You know,
2: we'll be like the Curry.
1: Yeah, but I think we'll that now. you know if, if you look at the, some of those early books, it, it's kind of shocking that, you know, oh gosh, they're not here, and yeah. they haven't been here for a long time. A lot of
4: wineries didn't make yeah. it. And uh, yeah, you better, you better be on your game. And, mm-hmm. and you know, th- we're doing things to help provide for that, such as owning our own vineyards, and planting new vineyards, and trying to explore and find the best possible sites to grow grapes, and to me, that's a good long-term.
1: It's our business it's really and, key. Yeah. Uh, if if you look at other wine-growing so. regions in in Europe where they've achieved a lot of acclaim, it's very hard to even buy you know a couple acres or one acre. Uh, or it, a few rows of vines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're here. It's like Adam drives around and Joe and I drive around too, and Anna probably too. You just look. Oh my gosh, that would be such a good vineyard there. Yeah.
6: Yeah, we're really lucky to be in an expanding wine. Region. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do think about Europe and and you know some of our guests that come from Europe during the harvest. We have you know, interns. Um, you know, I think one of the guys this year, his family's had the same vineyard for how long?
1: Oh. Three hundred years. Three hundred years. 400 years. Yeah. 400 years.
6: <laughs> yeah. So I think you know there there is a counter narrative to like I think the, you know Americans tend to think of family businesses as like oh the second or third generation is gonna crash and burn and spend all the money it's gonna go away but then you know I think particularly in the wine industry we're so connected to other regions you know in, in Europe and other parts of the world like there, there's there's a different model mm-hmm. and I, I think as Oregonians too it's um, you know we have such a focus on sustainability and that's you Know mm-hmm. that that's sustainability mm-hmm. too, so hopefully, we'll see. Yeah, oh, we have maybe we won't in 500 years, <laughs> we'll see. Joe, do you have anything to
5: add? I
2: think if we keep our land use laws mm-hmm. to where people can't build five acre monstrosities, you know, yeah. on all of our good hillside land where they, look, they love to the plant houses, as long as it's. We have a regulation that says you have to farm 40 acres and have income from that, from farming. Mm-hmm. We protect that land. Then there will be new sites that can be planted. Don't plant houses. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and, you know, even I think it, it's almost protect you from yourselves. You know, we own over 800 acres yep. in the Willamette Valley. And, um, we don't need another house on even those 800 acres. We need more than your on those 800 acres. You know, that's what you know. That's what you know. You build a house, you get that's one. That's jobs for one year. Where you plant acres of vines, mm-hmm. that's jobs for a lifetime. You know, and that's it's you know huge. jobs in agriculture. That's jobs in sales. That's jobs in administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Do we have we have four
1: houses on 800 acres, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple double wides for uh, well, one for our interns and one for one of our other vineyard workers, but we are not counting those. But yeah. <laughs> four houses on 800 acres, like that's plenty. Yeah. Four houses. Limit
2: the population, because they're predicting <laughs> that what Portland's population is going to double. Yeah. In the next 20, 30 years.
4: And yeah, we've got great <laughs> small towns around the Yamhill County that you know, essentially. Um, you know, those are amazing places for people to live, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, if if we keep taking farmland for housing, you're just gonna lose the ability to
3: mm-hmm. grow Absolutely. crops, yeah. and
4: value-added jobs, things like that.
1: Yeah, I've, I've talked to a few people who have come from other states that they'll be driving out, uh, maybe even on a, on a not-so-busy road, and they'll just be blown away because there's houses and then there's there's farmland. I mean, it is pretty amazing. And, and to me, also as an Oregonian, uh, I love the fact that we can grow so many different kinds of crops here.
6: Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have talked about the fact that we've had farmers in our family for a long time. Too. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's part. You, what, I think part of what you're hearing is like the philosophy of our family and you know, mm-hmm. the fact that we we do come from farmers and. Mm-hmm. Um, you
3: know,
6: we think of ourselves as farmers. Um, I mean, I think of myself as a farmer and I work on the computer
4: all day. Well, I was thinking, you know, my my great-grandfather, our great-grandfather was a dairy farmer, Mm -hmm. as was his father from Switzerland. Um, And, uh, um, you know, my grandfather was a pear farmer.
2: And my grandfather was a hog farmer.
4: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then these guys got to do grapes. And I just think, oh, my gosh, how lucky are we? <laughs> yeah. Grapes are pretty great. It's the
6: perfect <laughs> and value going, value
4: added your, agricultural. Your,
1: and
4: you. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. I mean,
1: stayed in the family. Yeah, and yeah. having
4: having value added agriculture is you know oh, obviously huge. for Oregon is key because um, if we can take grapes um, and add value to them, create a quality product, send those wines out of state and overseas and bring dollars home to Oregon, that's good for all of us.
3: Mm
5: -hmm. all right well those are the final questions that I have is there anything that you guys would like to add anything that I've missed or
3: you guys were really thorough I'll
2: just mention that you know Louis Pasteur once said wine is the most healthful of
3: beverages Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's Mm -hmm. still pretty good <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: it was definitely back true back, back then back then water was pretty dangerous yeah
4: <laughs> Yeah, it's true alright
5: well with that I guess we'll end our interview
6: thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org